As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is The Ruck, the rugby podcast from The Times. It's quarterfinal weekend of the Rugby World Cup and what an incredible 48 hours we've got in store. There have been some seismic shocks on and off the pitch, but will there be any more major surprises across the four fabulous quarterfinals? I'm Lawrence Delalio and I finally made it out to Japan. My co-hosts have been here for what feels like an eternity. I'm in Tokyo while Owen Slot. Stephen Jones joined me from Weta, where England and Wales are both in action, of course, this weekend. Gents, it's great to finally be here. I'm, uh, I have to say that my first impressions of Japan have been as exciting and as vibrant as I expected them to be. I obviously arrived a few days after Japan had beaten and knocked out Scotland, of course, out of the World Cup. So uh, it's been uh, absolutely buzzing here. And I have to say, I've done a lot of sleeping, which probably explains why I'm not as uh, a seasoned uh, and sort of hardened veteran of of World Cup tours like you two. But uh, what have you two been up to? Well, Lawrence, you're not really in Japan, are you? You're just saying that. I definitely am, I can tell you. I've been getting a lot of very strange looks as I walk down the street. From, from, I'm not sure if they're more terrified uh, than I am. Is that mainly from people who listen to The Ruck and think you should be back at home in the studios? Absolutely. Can't wait to see you boys, actually, in a couple of days' time in Wita. What have I got to expect when I get down there? I'm currently trying to persuade Jonesy into the onsen at our hotel. He, he, he seems a bit unsure about it, but he's going to look cracking in his swimsuit. Well, apparently on the onsen, you're supposed to be naked. And I just embarrass you, Sotty. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. So th- thanks for sparing me the embarrassment. <laughs> There's plenty of room for everybody in the onsen. Lawrence. Yeah, we're waiting for you, Lawrence, for the, for the onsen experience. Well, listen, should we get stuck into the rugby? Eddie Jones has, uh, well, quite a few of the coaches have named their side. And uh, Eddie Jones, has, in some people's eyes, has come up with a few surprises. For what it's worth, thoroughly delighted about the team that he's named. It's a proper test team. He's been uh, clearly uh, not had the opportunity to name this side for, uh, for quite a while. But uh, I think his selection, when you read into it, you can see from his quotes that he wants England to defend with brutality and play on top of Australia when they have the ball. And for my mind, England's best performance under Eddie Jones uh, in the last four years came in Dublin in the Six Nations. And this side is probably as close to that selection uh, as he can possibly get, maybe with the exception of Jack Knoll. And uh, I, I'm really, really pleased with it. He, he knows the strengths of Australia. He knows that Karevi will be coming hard and fast uh, directly down the Owen Farrell centre channel. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, you know, he, he thinks he can't defend against Australia with, with Ford and Farrell. And I quite agree with him. And he's worried about Tuolangi's pace, maybe if he pushes him out to outside centre. So, you know, the selection of, uh, of, of Farrell, Tuolangi and, and Slade is, is no surprise. And I think uh, 
you know, it's it's a really good call from Eddie Jones. I, I'm just interested to see if you guys agree. Well, Lawrence, the only shock selection there is that he has named a first team because uh, I, I slightly take issue with, with you there. He has had injuries, Marco Vernapola, uh, for instance. Uh, Henry Slade has had, a couple, has had a knock. But there was no reason why he had to pick George Ford for the last five games. Uh, everybody knew. In fact, I, I always assumed that Farrell would be the 10. And I just don't see what the point was in just leaving people out, leaving people out, trying new people, throwing up false uh, storm codes. I'm absolutely delighted with with the English team as well. I think it's excellent. If they're all fit to play, they'll be a really good side. But I, again, I just think, why wait till the knockout phases? If it goes badly, you're out to put the team together in the shape that it always should have been. I guess the one selection that may have caught people out or, or people might be surprised by is Courtney Laws ahead of George Cruz. You know, in, in that sense, maybe, uh, you know, that's a, a horses for courses scenario. He just wants a lot more physicality from his side. And obviously, Courtney Laws brings that. But, uh, you know, you, you wrote a piece in, in the Times saying that, that Farrell was kind of a little bit redundant at, uh, at 12. And, and clearly, uh, you know, Eddie Jones agrees with you. The, the reason it appears strange, Lawrence, is that, as Jonesy says, since the start of August, they've had seven games. George Ford has started at 10 in six of them. And of the England back line, Elliot Daly aside, you'd probably say that, that George Ford is the, the form player of that whole group. And you'd say that Owen Farrell is very much not. So for me, Eddie's gone on what he clearly had planned on probably since the start of the Six Nations. But... He's got. He, he's gambling on. On uh, there's a bit of it'll be all right on the night element to this. He's gambling on Slade hitting form when he needs to. On Owen Farrell getting back to his best when he clearly hasn't been recently. On on that 10, 12, 13 combination, just clicking the way it did, as you say, in its best game against Ireland. Uh, so will we see it again? Well, clearly England fans will hope that they will. But you just feel the best rugby's come when when George Ford has been at ten and not not Owen recently. Quite possibly, although I think, you know, you have to give a little bit of respect to Australia's selection. And I think with Karevi in the form that he's in at 12, um, an interesting selection from uh, from Michael Checker, Jordan Bataya, who obviously is uh, very inexperienced, but um, is one a player to really watch in the future. And, and he's gambled with picking him at 13 instead of O'Connor. And I can understand that the selection of, of Slade, albeit not much game time, but, uh, you know, he did defend superbly there in Dublin. And I suppose he's, you know, he's gone with what I'd call absolute test match animals. You know, he knows that Farrell will, will hit some form at playing at 10. Uh, he's the captain. He's, he's the leader of that group. The way Australia played against Wales in particular, where they came, you know, they went with Karevi hard and then they come around the corner with, you know, with their big ball carriers. You know, I, I think it's a, a team that's set up to defend with brutality, as, as he said. And, I'm, and I'm, I have to say, I really like the selection. And, you know, once the game softens up a little bit, as, as it will do, then there's nothing stopping him from, from bringing forward off the bench. And uh, as you say, you know, at the beginning of the World Cup, if we'd have picked a, a team, we would have picked this back line, no doubt about it. Everyone would have said, well, it's got to be Farrell, it's got to be uh, Tuilangi, and it's probably got to be Slade. The fact that those guys haven't played much rugby, it's probably changed a few people's minds. But... Uh, this is a serious game and the stakes are high and, you know, whoever loses goes home. So Eddie Jones has gone with the, with the tried and trusted. Lawrence, um, there's one, another thing. We, we're discussing sort of our own selectorial things. You know, you said it's a serious game. We should never forget this is an absolutely sensational game in prospect. It is exactly the sort of game that you need to kick off the quarterfinals. 
and uh, England, Australia in any sport couldn't be better. I also think, and I've thought since the start of the tournament, that this Australian team is A, underrated, and B, improving. And I think if England get out of this by one point, they would have done brilliantly. Anyone who thinks this is the old Australia team that England beat six out of six is in for a nasty shock. Uh, Pattaya just been described. Uh, Owen was just finding uh, on the on the online there, and he was described by some Aussie journalists as the biggest gamble Australia have ever taken in the World Cup. But there again, just add spice to it. I mean, what what an absolutely wonderful prospect. Talking about Australia, that they, they've not exactly been playing their best rugby in the last few years and certainly in the tournament itself. But uh, the fact that they've played a couple of games against, you know, what, what I call tier one, if I may use that phrase, or certainly high test match intensity, particularly against Fiji in parts and against Wales, that is a place that England haven't been to yet in this tournament. Uh, and they're going to have to get to it very, very quickly. And I think that is probably what has also spiked Eddie Jones's selection because he knows that that these guys have played at, at, you know, at that sort of uh, intensity already. And uh, well, now that we've uh, got the Australian side packed full of, uh, of potential match winners, particularly like the look of uh, Hooper and, and Pocock playing together, and we'll talk about the referee in a second, the appointment of Jerome Garces causing a, a lot of consternation, certainly back in the UK before I departed. And obviously uh, match winners in Corabetti and, and Karebi as well. But... Uh, you know, as you say, Jonesy, they haven't played that well against England in the last six fixtures. But the last time they beat them was at a World Cup, uh, was in England. And they seem to save their best footy for these knockout tournament stages. Wouldn't you agree? So, Lawrence, this, I think this is a really interesting thing that it, it comes up at World Cups. And we say about Aus- Australians and the Wallabies, we go, oh, Eddie Jones said it today, they're a great tournament side. You know, as, as if they have some kind of, kind of right to be better at being competitive and, uh, and rising to the occasion when it really matters than, than say, England. I, I asked Eddie about that today, and, and he said, well, they used to be better at that than England, but we, but we think that this England team have all that character and spirit and sort of tournament expertise that they do. So we, we, we go back to this thing that, that they are a tournament team, largely because the cycle they seem to run now is strong at World Cups and weak in between because they lose, well, partly because they lose so, so many of their decent players in between. I'd agree with that. I mean, they're wonderfully inconsistent, but I think the uh, the danger for England is that on their day, they are capable of producing some magnificent rugby, which was good enough to beat the All Blacks quite comfortably and cause a lot of the best teams in the world some problems. And I think that's the, that, you know, that's what makes, as you say, Jonesy, this tie such a, an incredible quarterfinal to kick off this, uh, this wonderful weekend because, uh, you know, yes, England are favourites, but only just, but it's got this wonderful air of, of unpredictability about it and uh, you know any England fans that think this is a, a formality because England have won the last six games I think can uh, can think again for sure and gents I must just bring us to the uh, to the appointment of, of, of the referee Jerome Garces as, as I said before I left the UK social media was up in arms with that appointment because um, it's not that he's not a, a very good referee but but he's he's very liberal I would say with 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 how he enforces the breakdown and I'm not surprised that that Australia have gone with with both Pocock and Hooper because uh, if they get the upper hand in that area, it's going to be a, a tough day for England at the breakdown for sure. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I suppose, Lawrence, when Pocock and Hooper are playing together, it's always a tough day. I, I, I mean, I think Gar says it's one of the great referees of, of all time. I do agree he's not as heavy and as hard at the breakdown, but 
whatever the rules rules he sets, I think England have got the back row to play to the same rules. And I think there'll be a lot of chat going on. I think, you know, I mean, there have been people, I mean, in the Japan-Scotland game, people were swallow diving on top of the ruck, propping themselves up on the ruck and reaching down to grab the ball and penalise. So whatever Jérôme uh, Gas says will be, you won't be as bad as that. I'd be staggered if it makes a, a, a big difference. And I think that uh, if he sees Pocock diving over and uh, off his feet, which he often is, he's got to get in early and then we can have a decent game. I really, I'm quite surprised there's been that sort of reaction because I think he's a really good ref. I think three of the four refs on the weekend are three of the best, uh, are the best we've ever seen. I don't disagree with that. I just, I just feel that England have to manipulate the strengths and weaknesses of, the, of, of Garces as much as Australia will. And, you know, to only penalise the All Blacks four times in the opening game against South Africa, you know, shows you that he doesn't like blowing the whistle very often. And he won't go to his pocket to give out cards unless he really, really has to. So England need to play on the edge. They need to push him right to the edge because you can guarantee that Australia will be doing that. Lawrence, you mentioned Pocock, and as a back row, you'd see this as better than anyone, but is he not the Australian superstar that hasn't quite found his form on this World Cup? I've seen enough of this Australian team to say that they had 25 really good minutes against Wales when they um, when they made that comeback, but obviously they came back against a weakened Fijian side after uh, their seven went off injured. But I have, I'm, I'm not totally convinced by them. I know their last, their last game was against Georgia and they, didn't, they, they, they struggled to really be convinced against that. And, and I've argued from the start of this podcast that how you play against the, the Tier 2 teams, um, forgive me for using the expression, how, how you play against them doesn't, isn't, isn't really an indicator. But I think there's a, lot of, there's a lot of attacking threats in this team. I don't think they've really put it together yet. And that pooper thing that we are fascinated in because it was such a major part of the last World Cup. I don't see that it's worked yet. I think that Michael Hooper is one of absolutely one of the very best players at this World Cup, but but David Pocock is still a reputation. Slotty slaughters Aussie great Pocock. Thanks for that now. Slotty Pocock slaughter. Lawrence, don't tell his wife, please. Or his no, mum. No, no, no. You've got enough people after you already. I mean, on the, the Pocock issue, I mean, I, I agree with you. He, he hasn't played anywhere near his best because his best is is absolutely genuinely world-class and he, he possibly came into this tournament as a bit of a risk in terms of his selection he hadn't played a lot of a lot of rugby you know he's got the most extraordinary career in the sense that um you know he, he's got uh, over 70 70 odd caps for Australia but but he's actually missed you know entirely three years of rugby so uh, you know all I do know is that when he decides to play his performances are right up there with some of the best players in the world and I just hope that he doesn't hit any sort of form, you know, this Saturday, really, against England. And uh, But, I mean, let's talk about England again. They're, they're obviously happy with, with Billy Vunapola's fitness. And, uh, you know, in many ways, uh, similar to Pocock, he's yet to really ignite in this World Cup. I'd ask the same uh, of Billy Vunapola, that, you know, if, if David Pocock hits some form, can, can Billy please hit some world-class form as well? So that we can see a real contest right across the field. Because the two back rows going head-to-head, as you say, uh, I'm really excited about. So, Lawrence, I agree that Billy's not really been at full metal Billy, if you like. But do you not think that even half a gear down, Billy still does an incredible job? Because one reason he's not not been supreme is because he, he gets double and triple tackled. And even if he, if he's not making dramatic uh, gain line breaks, mm-hmm. he's still dragging in so many defenders. He must be creating space somewhere else. 
I mean, that wasn't a that wasn't an attack in the same way as you, you slaughtered Pocock. I mean, you know, Tula Polar has got a huge part to play, has had a huge part to play in this tournament. He played every game in the build-up, but I just still think there's so much more in his locker than we've seen, uh, and I'd love to see it in a, in a in a game of this size and this nature. And maybe having his brother starting a Test match probably for the first time in quite a long time with him, you know, is a a proper test match that is that's not a friendly or something maybe will it be the spur to, to really lift them both and uh, you know I, I keep going back to that performance in Dublin you know that's the benchmark for this England side they, they played with power and by that I mean the two Vunapolas and two Alangi and they also played with supreme intelligence you know the ball over the top of the line out you know within the first few seconds of the game you know the kicking that really pinned that Ireland pack back on, the, on their heels and you know I, I want to see this this game bristling with power, but also I want to see England play with real intelligence against a team that are full of match-winning individuals, but I'm not so sure they're as much of a team as perhaps England are at this moment. So uh, what's what's your predictions, Shaq? So, I mean, you know, Jonesy, you said England would be happy to get away by one or two points. Are you, are you sticking to that? Yes, I am. I'm not, well, I'm not saying that, you know, they necessarily only win by one or two points. What I'm saying is it's going to be unbelievably tight. Incidentally, Lawrence, I'll just add another one to your list there. You mentioned Tuilangi. He is English rugby's great enigma, partly because he's been injured for so long, partly because he's inconsistent, and partly because they never quite work out what they want him to do. He could go away from this World Cup in the World 15 as one of England's greats. And I'm absolutely dying to see him play with Henry Slade, who I think is a beautiful player. So if those two fire, I think England will win. I think it'll be incredibly tight and maybe between three to five points. I would be surprised if it's any any more than that. And uh, just as I say, what a stunning opening to the quarterfinals. I just think with England that we ain't seen nothing yet. I mean, we, we really haven't. We, they haven't had a proper game yet. And... Uh, they haven't been tested yet, and we've discussed that. That's a problem. So I think predicting what England we're going to see is kind of hard. But I, I do have faith in in this in this team to perform, and I don't. And I think they've held so much back because they haven't had to show anything at all. I mean, you mentioned that play off the top of the line out in that Ireland game. They've got all that stuff that they've worked on. They haven't been in camp for five years or however long they've been away for it in order to not come out with anything. So uh, Australia have had to show against. Fiji and against Wales. They've had two massive games that they've had to win. England have had to do nothing. So I expect England to bring a hell of a lot that we haven't seen. And I think I'm not as impressed with Australia as Jonesy is. I think, again, we don't know what England can be like because they haven't had to play a game yet. But I would expect England to find decent form. And I think they win by by at least one score. Yeah, listen, I, I, I'm, I'm with you, really. I, I think the, the power that England can play with when they're on their uh, on their game and and the intelligence that they can play with, with some of the footballing ability, like the Tuolangi and Slade, and, and their back three is a, a back three that can scare any opponent. So, uh, you know, I fully expect England to deliver. I'm, I'm delighted that Eddie Jones has, has selected the team that he has. It doesn't really matter what I think, quite honestly, but I am pleased that he hasn't been lulled into, you know, thinking that how you play against um, some of the teams that, that aren't in the knockout stages is how you can play against a worthy side in the knockout stages. And I really like his team selection. I think he's got loads of options off the bench, contrary to what other people are suggesting. Uh, and I can see England winning by, uh, by a score, but I, take, but I take a point. And getting them into, into a semi-final, um, which would be absolutely fantastic. Really excited about that game. Of course, the other game in Wheater pits Wales against France. And that's on Sunday, 8.15 UK time. And I guess... Um, 
you know, Wales have been relying on their strongest 15 for, for the big pool matches, very different to maybe England's approach. Do we have any update on their injury situation and whether they've got their strongest side available? I mean, I think the latest on Jonathan Davis and Dan Bigger was was quite positive, wasn't it? It was, Lawrence. I guess it's a little bit more news. Oh, David Pocock's coming up the drive of with the his, hotel. With his mum. David, he's very sorry. <laughs> he didn't mean it. We know that Bigger's fit. We know that Jonathan Davis is fit. Uh, I think we pretty much know what they're going to go with. A question mark would be um, Moriarty or the magnificent Wainwright uh, in the back row. Other than that, they become a team that, that tends to pick itself. They're really confident with where they are. They're, they're very happy at, with where they are. They're very sort of relaxed within themselves. They're a very, very relaxed camp at the moment. So if you look at that, you think, well, they can get past France. We all. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Oh, that they can, uh, and and their personnel pretty strong. The, the, the injury issues aren't aren't, aren't going to be a problem for them. I think uh, Lawrence, they've been lucky with injuries. They've had their hammer blow. They lost their best player and the best in his position in the world in in Telepe Falatau. But they've been lucky since because they don't have an awful lot of cover in some positions. I think so much of this tie and the team relies on Thomas Francis at tight head because I think he's vastly uh, improved, possibly not quite world-class, but not far from it. But they do drop off when, when he has to go off. So they've been lucky with injuries. Or on the other hand, maybe their fitness training, etc., has given them that luck. But they, they are well together. They know exactly what they're doing. And I think that Gatlin will have some surprises up his sleeve in terms of attack uh, against France. I think they'll start rapidly. And again, Wales-France, I'll leave the French team to, to Owen, but I, <laughs> I think that France will play their best team and give their best performance since the last World Cup in four years. So again, Lawrence, what a cracker. Yeah, it is. I mean, and there's no one that probably knows that, that Welsh coaching setup better than myself, really. I've worked for many years with Warren Gatland and with Sean Edwards and with Paul Stridgen, uh, the fitness coach, and, and Prab Matanya, the, the physio. So, you know, for me, Wales probably look like a, the most like a club side in international jerseys, if you know what I mean. They, a lot of those players probably play more for their international team than they do for their club anyway. And they just, as you say, they enjoy life. They're very comfortable with each other's company. They know exactly how the, the game is played, uh, the, the way that Warren and Sean want the game to be played. And I, I just feel that there could be something special building um, as Warren Gatlin's reign, of course, as Wales coach, nears its end. And I agree with you. I think France will play well, but I, I can't see them upsetting Wales because uh, I think there's too much big game nous and big game know-how. If you look at the, the teams that Gatlin has, has prepared and coached and won and the teams that Edwards has prepared and coached and won, for them to, to, to not come through this contest, it just remains to be seen whether they they've got enough bodies left to make those two big games because France will will give them everything. And um, just a word on France, Lottie. I mean, are they in disarray? I know it's a cliche that we use time and time again. Are we to be wary of France or is this uh, one fight too many for them? Is it once a decade now that they're surprising us? I don't, I don't really see why we should think that they might do now, apart from this funny thing about that when they when they start infighting or fighting their coaches, then that's when they're dangerous and 
you know, I know there is a, is a theme in that. I know that, that there has been some disagreement in the camp in that um, Galtier prefers um, Camille Schatt as his um, as his hooker, and Gerardo is the captain, and he's the hooker, and, and I, I think that's caused a, a fair amount of um, dispute within their camp. So that, that's where the dispute is. Uh, I mean, logic suggests that that doesn't that, that doesn't help them win a win a Test match. Um, I think that uh, four years time we'll be hopefully talking about a different type of France because we know they've got great young um, players coming through and that they will have a more settled coaching environment. But Lawrence, I just think that it's almost a myth that there's going to be a French uprising. I, I, I'd love to be wrong. I just don't think there's a justification for thinking it might happen. It might happen. There might be a typhoon. There was a typhoon, but I just don't think it's going to happen. I can't argue with that, if, I, if I'm honest with you. But talking about rugby revolutions, let's let's focus on the game that features the host Japan against uh, the mighty South Africa, which was, of course, on Sunday, 11.15 UK time in Tokyo. What a story this World Cup has been for, for the host Japan and, and their coaches and their magnificent players uh, and their magnificent fans, quite frankly. It's been, a, it's been a monumental effort from all of them. I don't think I've seen a game quite like that Scotland match to, to uplift the spirits for, for quite some time. And it must have just been amazing to be at as a spectacle. And Jonesy, I read with with a lot of emotion what you wrote in, in the in the Sunday Times just about the occasion itself and where it sort of ranked in the sort of uh, legend of, of World Cup rugby. But let's just focus our attention now on this game. Is it a game too far for Japan? I mean, I don't think you could ever have two more contrasting styles of rugby. They've been a joy to watch. And I guess the big question is, can they lift themselves against a gargantuan opponent in South Africa and play with the freedom and the pace and the intelligence and the wit to bring down the mighty Springboks? Do you know what, Lawrence? I don't know what the answer to your question is, but they're going to have a really good go at it. Um, do you know what? We, we, we had to bring all the crowd down and the media down off the ceiling on Sunday. It was absolutely stunning. It rewrote the way the game can be played more than anything. Matsushima on the wing, the, the fast forwards they got, Fukuoka coming on to his replacement. These guys are absolutely electric. And don't forget, they beat, you know, they, they, they I mean, the box are a, big, are a big side. Ireland weren't that small and Scotland weren't either. And just a word for Scotland, because actually they came, they came really close at the end. But then you look at the South African team and Lawrence, you're quite right. How could you imagine in any rugby contest a team between, with two greatest styles? I mean, South Africa have brought Ludwig Jäger back with Ebenet Smith in the second row. Absolutely colossal. I mean, at the line-out, it's going to look like the under-13s against the first team sort of thing. And I, I think, you know, everybody knows how both sides are going to play. They're going to, um, South Africa have got two front rows. They're going to try and scrummage them into the ground. <coughs> and also, we don't know if G1 coup, their tight head, is going to be fit. Uh, you have to say that uh, South Africa will be favourites, remembering that's what they said about Ireland and Scotland when they played Japan. And I would love to see Japan come out, same style, which they will, score a couple of tries, and then we'll see what the Springboks are made of. But... Again, absolutely fascinating. I mean, South Africa were disappointing Owen against New Zealand, but you, you do sense that they kind of moved through the gears during the rest of the pool stages. As Jonesy said, no second guessing the, the style of rugby they're going to play. They've, they've picked an enormous pack of forwards. Uh, Faf de Klerk gets the nod at number nine. And, you know, they've got some intelligent footballers. They've also picked six uh, forwards uh, and only two backs on the bench. Am I right in saying that Japan beat Scotland with about 79% possession. 
Uh, they just denied Scotland the ball and they kept hold of it intelligently. I just wonder how much possession they're going to get against the Springboks and whether, you know, with that possession, they can be as intelligent and as patient as they were against Scotland. I think um, I, I think that that's what they'll try to do and that's what they'll hope, hope to do because that's, that's how they win rugby matches. We haven't seen them win in a, in a different way at this World Cup and I don't know if there is another way that they can beat South Africa. For me, it's it's just how how well they do at limiting South African possession. Because when if South Africa have the ball and keep it away from Japan, then they take their game away. I mean, Scotland kicked back to Japan um, sometimes in the second half of that game, which was just madness. If Japan get the ball and and run it from side to side, side to side, recycle, recycle, all that brilliant stuff that they did against uh, against Scotland then they can tire those those big springbok forwards and then you get a game. But if South Africa just deny them that, then I don't think that they'll win. Given what Japan have achieved in this World Cup, which if you compare it to other rugby nations um, who are in the knockout stages, you know, you could almost say Japan have won the World Cup in the sense of what, what they've done over the last few weeks in this tournament is as big as anything I've ever seen any rugby nation do in the, in the sense that they've beaten Ireland, they've beaten Scotland, and they've got themselves to a historic first-time quarter-final. I mean, for me, I don't want their journey to end. I don't think any of us want their journey to end. But, you know, if I was to put some predictions on the line, can any of us see our, our heart ruling our head on this one and see a third miracle or even a fourth miracle of Japanese rugby? Lawrence, uh, there's another thing you, you could have mentioned there in, in the sense of them winning the World Cup already. The TV audience on Sunday in Japan was 60 million. I mean, that is absolutely amazing. I hear what you say about, you know, they, they've already accomplished something. But uh, Jamie Joseph, the coach, and this absolutely astonishing man, Michael Leach, who is as Japanese as any Japan-born player, I think they will want to kick on. And I think they will think that they've <coughs> failed at least in the post-match, if they don't win. I think they, they, they think they got a chance, and I don't think they will be said, you know, allowing anyone to say, look, we've done well so far, we've got that in the bank. I think they'll be desperate to give it their best shot one more time. Owen, I mean, South Africa were a lot of people's, my own tip before the tournament. They've, they've certainly not hit the heights of, of what I expected them to so far, but... Uh, you know, surely you, you can see them uh, almost strangling and suffocating uh, this wonderful Japanese side and, and almost denying them possession in, in a kind of cruel and, and horrible way. And as you say, Japan won't die finding out whether they're going to win it. But uh, surely you, you, you're not going to back them to upset the odds. Before the World Cup, Lawrence, in the Times Rugby World Cup supplement, there were, we had six tipsters. And of the six, five of us went for South Africa which felt extraordinary at the time because we, we all thought each other was going to tip New Zealand. So that, that's how good we thought South Africa were um, six weeks ago. They haven't really gone backwards. They just had an average game against, uh, against New Zealand, which they didn't need to win. So I don't think we've really seen, seen much of them yet. Yes, I think they, you know, I, I hope it doesn't happen. I'd, I'd, love, I'd love to see another miracle. But, you know, if you're asking me what I think will happen, yes, I think they will strangle Japan. And I think that that will be the end of that. But I agree with what you're saying to an extent. Japan have already won this World Cup. I'm really interested to see what happens next, as in, do we all go home and just forget about what they did, or, or will other countries try and copy them? You know, will, will their players start playing more in the, um, in the Premiership? Will the national team start getting more games against Tier 1 teams, etc.? So I suspect this is the end, but they, they've won something in the process anyway, as you say. 
Well, I mean, suspect it may well be the end, but for Japanese rugby, it may well just be the beginning in the, in the sense that, you know, what they've achieved in this tournament is more than just, you know, a one-off victory. Um, that They've achieved something which has hopefully firmly put a stake in the ground for them to dine and eat at the top table of whatever that top table consists of these days uh, of, of international world rugby. And uh, it's got the powers that be uh, scrambling around in, in meetings thinking, you know, what are we going to do with Japan? And if it, and if something positive doesn't happen after this particular tournament with their rugby in terms of where they play and who they play against, then uh, I think there'll be a lot of very angry fans around the world because this must not be viewed as a, as a waste, what they've achieved here. Lawrence, there's just one more thing. Um, we're looking at these, uh, these, these games, these four great games. I just hope and pray that the strictures against high tackling don't ruin one of the games with an early red card. I think the referees have got to stick with what they've been doing. And I would hate it if anyone goes off early and, and wrecks the contest. Just secondly, I think it's important that you know that Slotty is working so hard. He stays in his room. He doesn't have time for dinner. And he's eating pot noodles. It's serious, isn't it? <laughs> the reason he's staying in his room is because I've got his wallet, which uh, his wife gave me very quickly, handed it over. And, and you know, you've been supporting him on the on your expenses and on your credit card. Um, so uh, I'd imagine he's lost weight by now. He will be reunited with his wallet in a couple of days in Wita. And uh, I think he owes us probably all a bit, quite a big meal, wouldn't you, wouldn't you agree? Now, moving on to our final quarterfinal, New Zealand against Ireland, which of course is on Saturday uh, at 11.15 UK time. The Irish have gone relatively under the radar at the weekend, beating Samoa comfortably to set up the mouth-watering quarterfinal against the All Blacks. Maybe not the quarterfinal that Irish fans were hoping for or indeed expecting, but joining us now is the Sunday Times Irish rugby correspondent, Peter O'Reilly. Peter, thanks for joining us. You, you, you're with the Ireland team. They've just named their team uh, a little while ago. And I don't suppose, yeah. given the options that uh, Joe Schmidt had, you'd be surprised with that selection. It looks a very strong, very experienced team to, to take on this huge task of trying to beat the All Blacks? Yes, Lars, look, there was a bit of chat um, after after Jordan Lama played so well against Samoa and Tyke Byrne did, uh, did himself no harm either in that game, but we always knew that Joe Schmidt was going to go back to guys like uh, Rob Carney and, and, and Peter O'Mahony. Think back to the fact that the last time Ireland played New Zealand uh, last November, Peter O'Mahony was the man of the match, probably won the game for them with a bit of a grab running back into his own 22 Rob Carney is made for these sort of games. Huge experience, huge leadership. Ireland have got, on average, about 60 caps per man, I think, going into this game, as against 40 for the Kiwis. So, um, yeah, you know, Joe, Joe Schmidt's been on a journey with these guys. You feel as though uh, he was always going to trust his, his leadership group. Ireland have had a great record, recent record against New Zealand. They had a terrible one before that. I mean, it must be pointed out. But their form kind of before... Uh, and I guess during this World Cup has been patchy at best. I've put my neck out on a limb there and and, uh, and, and said that I think this Ireland team are, are certainly capable of beating New Zealand. And, you know, if I look at all the lineups across the quarterfinals, you know, this is the one where I think, you know, if they play anywhere near their ability, which we haven't seen for a while, they can cause an upset. It's... Uh, the only thing I've upset at the moment is people in New Zealand. I can assure you of that. But uh, do you agree with me? Is there any chance of an upset at all on the cards here? I think I think the players themselves believe that. Just uh, just chatting to a few of them during the week. Uh, I mean, they understand that they're going to have to play better than they played in 2019. 
But they've got a bit of a legacy already, this group. You know, they've, they've won a Grand Slam. They're the first group to have won a Test Series in Australia. First Irish team a couple of years ago to win a Test match in South Africa. And, of course, they've beaten New Zealand in two of their last three outings. I think it was, it was interesting to, uh, to listen to the All Blacks talk about Ireland, people like Steve Hansen talk about Ireland. You know, he was, in the past, you always got the impression that they would just say, yeah, the, the Irish will bring lots of pride and passion. Whereas now, when we were talking about the Irish midfield, you know, they were talking about not just Henshaw and Ringwald, but he mentioned Chris Farrell. Ian Foster mentioned Chris Farrell the other day. Sonny Curry Williams today talked about Chris Farrell. This is a guy, you know, who's um, probably third or fourth choice centre in the Ireland squad, but they've had to do their homework because Ireland have put them in, into that position. So, uh, you know, the forecast isn't great for Saturday. Um, Ireland would hope that it's going to be a relatively low-scoring game. They don't want a game where there are uh, where they can allow the, uh, the New Zealanders to, to get transition ball and, and, and attack from broken play. Uh, they play a very structured game. That's, that's how they've had success this far. And I think that so much experience within the group that, yeah, they do, they do believe they can cause an upset. When you hear Joe Smith talk up the, uh, the New Zealand wings, uh, you immediately wonder about what he's got in his bag for them. You know, you've got real... Uh, inexperience there um, so the kicking game is going to be absolutely massive the, the number of contestables the way in which um, they try and set things up to, uh, to put pressure to put area of pressure on, on George Bridge and especially I would say several weeks. he will definitely have a couple of starter plays a couple of things that he's already said that they've never used before you know Schmidt tends to go back to, to plays that have worked for, for him in the past and maybe tweak them slightly um, it's, it would be fascinating to see where he thinks they, the All Blacks might be vulnerable. They've got a, you know, they've got a couple of 24-year-olds uh, in the centre as well. But, like, they're definitely not as strong as the 2015 team in certain areas. So you can be sure that he has looked in minute detail at any potential weaknesses. So those, the interesting things, I suppose, would be the couple of starter plays or launch plays, uh, offset piece, uh, and the kicking game especially to put pressure on on the two young wings in the, in the All Blacks team. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, looking at their side, they picked, what, Jack Goodhue in the centre, along with uh, Anton Leonard-Brown, uh, as you say, George Bridge and, and Sebu Reese. So, you know, compared to All Blacks teams of the past, it's, I mean, it's relatively inexperienced. I mean, they have got, obviously, Bowden Barrett at fullback, and uh, clearly one plan will not be to give him the ball too much because uh, we all know what he's capable of. But, uh, you know... The All Blacks have, have kind of produced moments of, of brilliance, but only in, in short spells compared to previous campaigns, maybe. And I guess, you know, whilst Ireland have had a torrid time in, in qualifying, they have qualified. And, and really, apart from the game against South Africa, which was at the beginning of the tournament itself, you know, you feel that New Zealand have virtually had a month off. So there is a chance yeah. for this Ireland side to catch the, the All Blacks. It, they, they've got to do it right from the start, haven't they? They've got to set the tempo right from the off. When Ireland you know, has beaten New Zealand, it's always been by, by, by building a lead and then defending it. They're not a team, yeah. as you say, that you want to chase. Uh, but it's not, I suppose the reason for that self-belief is in things like the fact that Conor Murray and Johnny Sexton are making their 55th test start as a partnership together, whereas say, Alan Smith and Richie Munger are playing their third or maybe fourth test start together. You know, I'm, it's gonna, I think it's interesting that Steve Hansen talked about picking Jordy Barrett as his uh, outside back sub, and one of the reasons that he, he went for him ahead of uh, Ben Smith was that 
he offers a, a long-range penalty, long-range drop goal option. So if you're thinking about putting somebody on the bench for that reason, you're obviously expecting it to be a tight, close game. That's the respect that the, that the New Zealanders have for the Irish now. And I think that the Irish guys would be able to put behind their relatively poor form of 2019 and feel that they have actually built a bit now towards by going reasonably well against Samoa that they're feeling they're ready to, to go up another level when they need to. Because, of course, this is, you know, this is Ireland going for their, their first ever World Cup semi-final and they may just feel that there's a, a sort of destiny thing about it for them. Well, listen, it's got, it's got a wonderful test match, a wonderful quarter-final of the Rugby World Cup written all over it. Peter, really appreciate you joining us and who knows, we may be talking next week about Ireland and a semi-final place. Peter, thanks very much indeed. Look forward to it, Lawrence. Cheers. Well, there you have it. We've got four absolutely mouth-watering quarterfinals to look forward to this weekend. My thanks to Owen Slot, Stephen Jones and, of course, Peter O'Reilly. What a weekend we've got coming up. I hope you enjoy it too. Wherever you're watching the games, have a great time. And don't forget the Ruck returns on Monday with all the reaction to those unbelievable quarterfinal lineups. Never miss an episode. Subscribe now via Acast, iTunes or your preferred podcast provider. 